Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How you doing? Uh, <laughs> okay, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that yeah, later. Uh, I was going to say, we should really check our blood pressure. It's, <laughs> it's, it's been a while. Uh, my dad is at 146 over 69. Is that today's I, measure? Yes. I, I mean, surprisingly good considering that he's... He watches MSNBC all day. Yeah, no, and all day that would have done it. Well, yeah. for, it's a little high, but it, it for him that's okay, right? Well, one right, it is a little one forty six. Like yeah, when yeah. we give his his uh, blood pressure, it's usually in that range. Well, I, I thought it seemed. A I little think higher, it, but... I think my mother told me at his age, you're he's maybe ninety three in March, that you're supposed to have a little bit high, I think, or a little bit low. I can't remember, but anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, I'm cheating a little bit because we, we spoke the other day offline, uh, but I wanted to talk to you about Christmas in New York. Um, well, Christmas, the holidays, excuse me. Oh, oh okay. The, the, excuse me, the holidays. Because um, I know you have a, a little oh, bit I, of... Oh, I thought at first you were talking to some obscure musical that I didn't quite remember. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I want Ruby Keeler or something. No. Okay. I mean, Christmas in New York, uh, holidays, excuse me, in New York... Are it's a great time to be there. I and always I'm, thought so. Yeah. I'm, all, I'm wondering uh, if you got out much and like what was it like? I mean, was it just? Uh, can you compare it to anything? Can was it anywhere near normal or just? Not no. It certainly wasn't normal. I mean, I usually every year try to, you know, get uptown see the windows, check out the tree at Rockefeller Center, you know, right. the, the, that that sort of a thing. So I did do that. Uh, not like the day after Christmas, I think mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. And one thing that, that surprised me a little bit, it seemed like, you know, Midtown has been a real ghost town mm-hmm. all this time. There seemed to be more tourists on the streets in Midtown than okay. I've seen other times. Okay. Um, other times during the pandemic. Other times during the pandemic, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there are very few stores to now check out their windows anymore. You so know, the, when you say gra- that, like, I mean, the famous ones are, well, for windows, uh, what are the famous windows? I always stores? thought, I always, for years, I always thought Lord and Taylor Was did the best. the best windows. Are they gone? Uh, they are gone. They they uh, because they, of the pandemic, or was that? No, no, no. They had well, no. They had already. They had actually sold that whole building, which if, I don't know if you remember was on on Fifth and Thirty Eighth Street. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can picture it. They they sold. I think it was to WeWork a oh, couple God. of years ago. That's a whole yeah. other story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I but know. I think I think WeWork. I think though, I want to say maybe Google took it over from WeWork. Maybe Google has it now, or one of the big tech companies and they took do, over that space. they don't space. do Christmas windows? No, they're, 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 there's no store anymore. I saw that they always did the nicest, most traditional windows. Basically, mm-hmm. the only store I, I, I went up, so basically I went up to see the tree, and right across from the tree is Saks. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were kind of eh, kind of mediocre. Um, and when I got to the tree... You know, it looked very nice from Fifth Avenue, and I looked down there, and oh, okay. So I usually, you know, let's go. I'll go up there and, you know, check out the skaters at the rink. Mm-hmm. And there were a line of people kind of going down that promenade, and I, I was stopped. 
you know, my guy. And he said, you know, where are you going? I said, oh, I just want to go to the rink and see the skaters. Uh, no, not this year. Nope, can't do it. They were just blocking everybody off. They were allowing but people to get. But there were skaters. Their, I guess so. Uh, not normal. You had to make a reservation. You just can't show up with your skates. You have to uh, plan ahead. Right. And I think it was, he said, 25% capacity. Mm-hmm. And that's a small rink. So that's not, that's not many people at all. Right. right. And they were allowing people to take pictures of themselves uh, against, you know, with the tree behind them, but, mm-hmm. but from like a block or two away. So I'm like, oh. Great. Okay. This is, this is different. I can't see the skaters. So I, then I get it in my head. Okay. I'll walk up fifth Avenue. I'll go to central park and I'll go to Wolman rink and I'll, I'll see skaters there hopefully. Right. And, and I did the, the, it's a much bigger rink and they were, you know, they were a lot of kids. I mean, people in mad that you had to have a mask, but it was, you know, thankfully it was normal. It was like a normal Christmas in New York experience. Just seeing that the man just wanted to see somebody skating. It did. Uh, yes, Maurice Richard. It doesn't. What? Whoever. It didn't. Really uh, right. Exactly. You know, Peggy Fleming. The <laughs> Gordie Howe. It really didn't matter. Right. Um. So that that was nice, and you know, and there. Were, I think other people might have had the same idea. It seemed like there were a lot of people kind of walking in Central Park, Central Park, checking this out. But now that I think about it, I, I think it was Saturday. So it was a weekend as opposed to during the week. And are there but, any, are there any Hanukkah, uh, things that you would normally do on Hanukkah that, uh, that you could or couldn't do this year? What, well, what are Hanukkah actually, tra- New York well, Hanukkah well, traditions. You eat latkes. Latkes. Where do you, you get? Latkes. Where do you you make well, them at home, or you? Well, you know, usually, I made yeah, I made Kugel this year. You saw. That. I know. I I, I saw it. The, Next it, time we see each other, I'm going to make it. The second time I made it, it turned out really it, good. It was the really second good. picture you showed me looked really good. Really, I thought really visually good. it was sensational looking. Yeah. yeah. But the, you did tweak the recipe the, at all? Did you? I I so it's it, it was a, a recipe the I got from the New York one, Times. Yeah, yeah which is you. It's like a. It's supposed to be sort of a mashup of sweet and and like Savory. it has a lot of pepper and a lot of like caramel basically in it. Yeah. And um, I don't like the pepper part as much. Like I like a little bit of it, but um, we Andrea has a friend here in Potsdam who lived in in Israel for a long time, and she insists you have to like just dump tons of of uh, pepper in it. But I put a little less pepper in the second time, and it was it was you were happy, and I did a better okay. job with the car- caramel. Yeah, and it was, oh, okay. it was really No, it really looked good. great. Yeah. Really so, good. oddly enough, you know, my nephew who lives in Queens, mm-hmm. uh, we had been talking about, I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in the last 10 months, Then he's got these kids who I miss, right. and I we took a chance. I actually went out to Queens. Oh, good. Um, took the subway, my first subway trip in all this time. How was that? That was weird. Yeah. It was a little weird. First off, was it, it was busy, a, it was, packed, or, or well, that was the weird thing. It was a weekend, so I figured, eh, you know, I can, and and they run less, you know, for fewer trains. So it was the car I got on had a lot what, of people in it. What train? And I'm like, uh, it was the F oh. uh, out to Forest Hills, hmm. and um, but after like a stop or two, a lot of people got off. So going into Queens, I was, but you know, I tried not to touch anything. It, it, it was a little weird. It looked very clean though. But the nice thing was 
we I get out there and my nephew has, you know, my mother and grandmother's, you know, old recipes. Mm. He makes sensational latkes. He loved them growing up as a kid. He follows my mother's recipes. We we made them together. And also he, he we he made a kugel as well, a noodle kugel as mm. well as latkes because he loved that's his favorite. And the and the latkes were great. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just like mom's used to be and it was a thrill eating them. So, good. you know, that that's 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 Hanukkah. Oh, I'm glad you got to see somebody. That's good. Uh anything else going on in the neighborhood? Uh, any Garden of Eden updates we need or or Hollywood uh, diner? Are they still going? The, the actually the diner is still going even in winter. Mm-hmm. They've got a much they've got a fairly elaborate outdoor thing and actually the other day I walked by and it was a pretty cold day and uh, people are bundled up in their parkas in there but they're eating outside. It's <laughs> it's weird. Bless them. But they're doing it. Yeah. And 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 the weird thing was those nuclear powered heating lamps yeah. are yeah. only kind of on the side right by where the diner is. On the street, you know, a few feet away, they built this big booth thing. I don't see those kind of heaters there. So, but there, a lot of people were like all the tables on, on the street were taken and, and people were like, their teeth were chattering, but they were eating. Yeah. Uh, I, you, I saw somebody, are you see are people doing that up, up where you are? Well, I went to Troy yesterday. I just got back oh. this afternoon. I just go yeah. down there once in a while to check it out. The apartment's apartment the, it's okay. It's everything's all right, yeah, landlord. Yeah, okay. Everything's okay. Yeah. And uh, before I came back this afternoon, I drove through downtown Troy, which is uh, uh, for people that have never been there. It's a town. It's about fifty thousand people. Um, the downtown is very concentrated. It really feels like Brooklyn, like like a like a, like a neighborhood in Brooklyn, like somebody took Borum Hill or something and like just plopped it down. You know, interesting. Next to Albany, so so there's like some there's nice housing stock, interesting architecture. Yeah. Stock, beautiful. Really, you should. What one day you're gonna? Oh, one one day, yeah. It's, it's and, really and, nice. and, and, yeah. Lots yeah, of great okay. history. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the country for in the like the 1800s and stuff. And um, so there's lots of brownstones and opulent old mansions and stuff. And um, anyway, but I just wanted to drive through to get a sense of whether like I w- everything was going to be you know closed up or all the restaurants or bars I remembered would be shut down and it didn't seem too bad uh, there was one restaurant that was gone um but you know yeah. most things seemed to be open and sort of hanging in there doing the best they could i don't know how much longer that can that can last. But there are, no, there are can, no kids there like the the, the students there are aren't students there. on campus there are well now oh. there's now they're it's between semesters, but but RPI uh, has students on campus. Yes, not all of them. They're doing some weird thing where it's like if you're a freshman and a senior, you're there. Oh, you're oh, not okay. If you're a junior and a sophomore. Um, okay. But you know that seemed to be. I don't know how long, how much longer that can go on, but I think they're sort of muddling through for now, uh, and. Uh, you know, I guess the hope is that like this is the last, you know. So, yeah, well, if they here. can, 
if we could roll out the vaccine a little quicker, that would help. But yeah. I mean, are they, are, are they, I hear some campuses are, are they doing virtual classrooms and yeah. they're restricted to their dorms? They can't do know. anything. They get Is tested that sort like of twice a week. They don't go to every class. It's it's very sort of all over the place, you know. Oh god, I feel and so the, sorry for these kids. This is yeah. not the way to go to college. No, this is not. wrong, you know. Yeah, but um, anyway. So, um, all right. Well, uh, you want to try to? I don't know how likely it is that we get to one twenty over eighty, but we could give it a shot. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, since it's been a while since we've done this, uh, I wanted to go over again why uh, we decided to do this podcast. And it was mostly my idea um, originally nine months ago, whatever it was, in, in you know March of 2020. Um, and I'll do this in reverse order of importance. Number three was to become a famous podcaster. That that was never really in play, I don't think. Uh, there There is no more crowded field right now than people doing podcasts um and it was never my intention at least to i, I wasn't thinking too much about the audience building an audience or, or or this becoming some sort of going concern um but number two was that i wanted to sort of have the chance to exercise my production muscles which could become atrophied as i left doing what I used to do and went back to school. And it just gave me an opportunity to like, think about producing something, you know, uh, we don't do rundowns really or anything like that. But I send you notes and sometimes and we, we talk we have like sort of show meetings, right? A little yeah, bit. sometimes I even read those notes. Yeah. So yes, yeah. <laughs> so we, we talk about what we're gonna do. And, and I got to edit, uh, edit the audio and find, you know, throw in music and little production elements and stuff like that and it just keeps me from keeps that muscle whatever that muscle is that production muscle from atrophying too much and the the most important part was that it just felt like this was a time of great anxiety and isolation um for me even though i have a a wife and a a, a four-year-old a soon-to-be four-year-old living with me my god um, four years old and for doug who who lives by himself uh, in a city of 8 million people, but still by himself. And that it would be nice to just talk to a friend every couple of weeks about things that make us happy. And that was the, the idea, the title of the podcast being 120 over 80, the sort of uh, sweet spot of, uh, of your um, blood pressure. And we wanted to get to that spot by just talking about things that we liked. And this was the main, that was the main reason I did it. I just wanted to, have a and chat, it, and a it worked, as the English and it would say. For me, I yeah, agreed completely. As yes. the English would say, have a chin wag every uh, <laughs> every couple of uh, every couple of weeks. And I have to say that I thought that it would be over by now, um, but it might actually be worse than ever. Uh, the yes. pandemic is still raging, though. And we're still and we're still talking to each other. We're still talking to each other. There, there is a vaccine-shaped light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. Uh, and you pile on top of that an election uh, that was very contentious. And finally, what happened yesterday in Washington, D.C., where uh, a couple of thousand, I actually still, 
I'm not still not certain exactly how it's, many it's in dispute the number i've heard anywhere from 10 to like to 30,000 right. but the thousands of uh of if you're a trump supporter you would call them protesters everywhere else on the political spectrum views them as rioters at best and domestic terrorists at worst stormed the capitol uh, after dear leader trump told them they would never get what they wanted by being weak and told them to basically march on the capitol and they forced Congress to adjourn um, and delay the certification of the presidential election in favor of Joe Biden. And I think something I think we're up now to four people that that died. Uh, four people have died. A woman was shot. Someone had a heart attack. We have no idea. Oh, was it a heart attack? I've, I haven't heard what the other three people one of them was a heart attack. I, I heard. Yeah. Um, they got into the Senate chamber you know, uh, into Nancy Pelosi's office. They broke a lot of shit, scared a lot of people and tried their best to disrupt the transfer of, uh, this is a term you hear a lot these days at this time of year, the, the peaceful transfer of power, um, because it reflects a victory for a party and more broadly speaking, a group of people, uh, many of them people of color whose votes they see as illegitimate and that their power is illegitimate. And um, I think we've seen the la- our last election in which the outcome is accepted by the loser for a while now. Um, I would argue that I would argue that it's been close to 30 years since we had, I think George HW Bush was the last president who was sort of universally accepted after he beat uh, Dukakis. Was it Dukakis in 88? Yeah, uh, yeah. In 92, Clinton won, but only because Ross Perot Ross. was in it. So that that made him illegitimate. And that ushered in the Newt Gingrich era right. where basically, you know, you know, burn the house down. Right. Politics really came to this country. Right. And they, you know, per, the they opposition sp- is the enemy. They spent eight yeah. years trying to get him and they finally almost did. He got reelected, but, you know, only because he was there in the first place. Then Bush won in 2000, but didn't get the most votes. He won again in 2004 and did get the most votes, but... Um, but if you remember, but, there, there there was a huge problem in Ohio. in Ohio. And plus, uh, you can uh, always say with the second term that, well, it wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been a first term, so the whole thing is illegitimate. Then Barack Obama was elected, and of course, he was illegitimate in the eyes of some, basically because he was black, uh, so he must not actually be American. And then Trump won in 2016, uh, again, not getting the most votes, and now we're at 2020, and again, you know, a third, maybe a little less than a third of the country just doesn't believe that the person who won the election actually won the election. Um, this is not a political podcast, really, so I want to give you two uh, recommendations of podcasts to listen to, um, mm-hmm. especially if you're on the left. If you're not, if you're right on the right, you probably won't be interested in these, but these are the ones I listen to. One is called Know Your Enemy. It's hosted by two guys, one named Matthew Sitman and another Sam Adler Bell. Um, it's it's sort of a it's a the you could kind of tell from the title. It's a it's two liberal guys doing a deep dive into conservative politics, conservative thinking, conservative ideology. They the first couple episodes, I think it's been going for a year or two now. The first couple episodes were like uh, a sort of a dive into like the history of the conservative movement, starting with, you know, William H. Buckley, the 
uh, John Birch Society, things like that, uh, Barry Goldwater, how that all came about and developed and up you know, mm-hmm. through through Reagan uh, and to the present day. And now they sort of cover conservative thinking. Uh, they, they, they cover politics through that lens. Uh, and they did an episode. It's actually behind a paywall, but if you want to give them five bucks a month on Patreon, I recommend it. Um, they they did a, an episode on what happened last night um, or the other night in Washington that was really good. And the other one is called Kush Vlogs, which is hosted by a guy named Matt Chrisman, who's one of the hosts of Chapo Trap House. Um, that's more left wing um, than even Know Your Enemy. Um, and Chrisman, uh, I think, is really smart. Um, you know, he's part of that sort of. Was he one of the guys we saw live at the Strand? Yes. Oh, Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yes, we saw them at the Strand when their book came out. Yeah. Um, He's part of that sort of, and we'll talk about these guys, this sort of too cool for school uh, nihilist. Some people call them the the sort of nihilist. Uh, They're also referred to as the dirtbag left. Um, Strong Bernie supporters, real socialists, you know, not liberals, but socialists. And he did an episode as well, right after, right in the wake of all this, or as it was happening, um, which I think is worth a listen. And two of the things they talked about piqued my interest, and I wanted to throw them at you, Doug. One is this ongoing debate over whether this is fascism, uh, or or whether liberals or centrists are overreacting. So people in the center, those you might read, I know you're a New York Times subscriber. Uh, those people you might read in the New York Times, for instance, have been warning since he was elected that Trump is a fascist. And at the same time, there is this considerable faction of the sort of cynical, again, too, school, too cool for school left that thinks this is all an overreaction. And specifically that it's a tactic being used by the establishment to discipline progressives, to basically oh. say to them. Because they're from, it's a pox on both your houses. You're all one big pot therefore you know we're the only ones who really advocate yes change and therefore what do we care about the democratic party because you're all the same yeah they spend a lot of time shitting on the democratic party i think partially because the republican party in a lot of ways has become such a joke that they don't they they don't even think it's worth talking about um Uh, they think maybe there's something salvageable uh within the democratic party that, that makes criticizing it more valuable. Um, but their belief is that this is used by, by sort of centrists, neoliberals to scold people and scare people into voting for them. Uh, look what's good. The, so they can point at these protesters the other night and say, mm-hmm. you see, this is what's waiting for you. If you don't vote for us, you have to vote for us. If you don't vote for us, it's fascism. Right. So stop asking for Medicare for all. Stop asking for free college. Stop asking for police reform, whatever. Just shut up and vote for us because otherwise we'll be living in you know Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And um, both of these things can be true, of course. And I think Sitman and Adler Bell on Know Your Enemy do an especially good job of expressing that what we are seeing is both new and really scary. And given what we know about Donald Trump and his capacity to think beyond himself, which is he doesn't have a capacity for that for even a moment that it is also probably something of an overreaction and that Trump is capable only of sort of inciting these spasms of violence, which are very dangerous, but don't really represent anything more than that. Um, 
because he has no ideology um, beyond staying one step ahead of the posse coming after him and doing whatever it takes, you know, to like to make himself the sort of attention absorbing singularity at the center of American political and cultural life. He wants to be on TV all the time. And that's his motivation. It's got nothing to do with ideology. And he wants to be this guy that we have to pay attention to all the time. And when he stops being president, we stop having to pay attention to him all the time, right? Crispin talks about this as well, but he's mm-hmm. even more leftist. The other thing, um, especially the Know Your Enemy guys talk about, it touched a nerve with me because I often feel it's the exact, the exact same way about, in fact, it may be the feeling I am most familiar with in the last four years related to Trump or Trumpism is this tension between absurdity and menace that these people are both extremely dangerous and scary and also unbelievably just goofy and ridiculous sometimes. Uh, I'm sure everyone has seen the pictures of the bare-chested guy with the horns and the fur hat that uh, was involved in the um, riot at the Capitol. Uh, There's always people, of course, in tri-corner hats and Revolutionary War gear, people posing for selfies. You know, they're accomplishing nothing, basically, except sowing chaos. And it's just... It's a lot like Trump, who can barely put together a coherent sentence and has no plan for anything, be it COVID or mounting a coup. And yet he is incredibly dangerous and will continue to be when he's out of power, even though if you listen to him speak for even five minutes, you would think he was just a sundowning old man talking the ear off of an aide in a nursing home common room. I mean, he's he spent several minutes the other day um I read the transcript of his speech that incited the riot talking about how Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia only weighs 130 pounds, but claims he played offensive line in high school. And that must be a lie because he's never heard of an offensive lineman who only weighed 130 pounds. I mean, just lunatic stuff, like just a lunatic. And it's that tension between this absurdity and menace. And those are Sam Adler Bell's words. And I think it's well put. That is the most familiar feeling for me of the last four years. I don't know mm-hmm. what you think about either of those. I know we, I think we part ways a little bit on this. Yeah. Stuff, but... Well, first off, the idea you, that you talk about the, the one podcast talking about the history of the modern conservative movement and, you know, from Buckley on up. And even in all those eras, there were clownish elements to all of them. I mean, at the time, which Buckley, Buckley explicitly moved to get rid of a lot of that stuff because well, he Buckley, was, Buckley, like he was against John Birch yeah. and, you know, he, yeah. he, you know, he was the intellectual engine of the whole thing, but he was a, a huge defender and advocate of Joe McCarthy. And if you look at clips of Joe McCarthy and even people at the time, th- there were a lot of clownish elements to him. I mean, it was hard to take him seriously, and yet you had to because of the damage done. Um, Reagan, when he was governor of California, you know, the B-movie actor, and people didn't take him seriously into the 70s as he's running for president. And he's a lightweight, and he reads from a script, and there's not an original thought in his head. And yet he gets elected president, and... He does a lot of damage. You know, he it, it's a continuum. And from Reagan, we get into Gingrich. And then from Gingrich, we get into, you know, W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
all, the line and, and the blood keeps thinning, you know, right. all of a sudden we're dealing in 2008 with a Sarah Palin and the idea, cause at the time, after a few days of us actually getting to know her, people were looking at each other like, how is it possible that she is the Republican nominee for vice president? Mm -hmm. You can't be serious about this. This is the dumbest woman we've, I mean, she was incredibly ill-prepared for where they put her. And yet from Sarah Palin, then we get to Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that's and Donald Trump idea. gets elected. So I guess what I'm saying is to the, the 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 guys on the far left, I have more sympathy for what they were saying up until the last four years. You could afford to be a little precious. You can afford to be holier than thou, but these four years, culminating in yesterday shows us the, the the price of of that preciousness yeah you know I, we we have seen the abyss we're we are living through the abyss and it's going to take us a very long time to get through this so my attitude is you know i i will advocate for many of the things that they they advocate for you know i still think medicare for all is the way we have to go i think it's a very practical solution to, to what we need to do, but we have to listen to the incrementalists and to the people who are saying, whoa, 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 we're, we're, you know, and especially now, you know, even with the house and the Senate, there's such narrow tight margins that, I mean, Andy, I think you said the other day, Joe Manchin of West Virginia might be the most powerful yeah. man in government. Yeah. He'll have the most sway. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, he's a very conservative guy. Yeah, and and he will have a lot to say about what comes out of uh, legislation in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And it's fifty-fifty. I mean, no, nothing major can happen. Things will happen by reconciliation. There will be no Medicare for all in the next two years. You know, things like that just cannot happen. It's a practical reality that we just have to deal with. So. And we have to recover from this, unfortunately, incrementally. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of damage we have to overcome here. So I think up until Trump, I was more in sympathy with the thoughts of the left in that sense. But I, I, they, they lose me now on that because, unfortunately, you know, if, the, if they can't see what we have all seen these past four years and what the world is seeing. I, I don't know what to say to them. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, uh, and of course nobody will remember this now. It's gone down the memory hole, but I mean, I'm sure I know for certain that people compared George W. Bush to Hitler. Yes. I mean, we, yes, we threw around fascists way too easily for, yes, yes. For, uh, yes. I, so I think now it means the, nothing. Oh, now basically. it means nothing. You know, when we see like, in, in, you know, Trump is a nihilist really I, more than anything else, but yes, we, I think there was a tendency to, to throw that term around at any Republican we, we didn't like. And, and, and they did and, the same that, thing, uh, you know, but a communist well, or instead communist, of communist, you know, well, liberal, liberal became the same thing as a communist. 
Right. I mean, I mean, I, it stunned me that in my lifetime, the word liberal is never used by liberals. Mm-hmm. The progressive, whatever. The word liberal is never used by anyone on the in the national mainstream. Yeah, it's frightening. So no, but I think that there is something to be said about that. We were we were far too uh, cute and easy about throwing that term around, mm-hmm. and I I, I, th- I think we have to own up to that. So a few weeks ago now, uh, we were talking because we hadn't done an episode in a really long time, and we wanted to do another one. <clears throat> so we were we were trying to think of some some topics, films, TV shows, books, music, whatever. And we picked a bunch of movies that we thought would be interesting around the inauguration. And two of them, actually, we thought, in light of what happened the other day in Washington, had particular resonance. Um, and so we sort of combined those two. They were supposed to be in separate episodes. We decided to uh, combine them. The first is Seven Days in May, starring Burke Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, uh, as well as Frederick Marsh, who plays the president, which is a movie about actually about a coup. It takes place in 1970. Uh, the movie was made in 1970. In the early 60s, actually. Right. But the movie yeah. is supposed to be in 1970, right? I don't think it really. I don't think I remember That's being that explicit. Wiki, the Wikipedia page claims it was 1970. Oh, I, hmm. And the second. Okay, I never saw that. But all the right. second movie is 2012's Lincoln, starring Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, Steven Spielberg directed it, uh, which is not about a coup, but is about how important a president can be um, in the context of a moment in history. Abraham Lincoln, as is suggested in, the, in one of the, my favorite scenes in the movie, um, was perfectly suited, or as he says, fitted to his times, and he made a difference. It mattered, it mattered that it was him at that moment, mostly in a positive way or entirely in a positive way, just as it matters now that Donald Trump is president and what kind of person he is. So we'll talk about those two movies. First, uh, when we come back, 1964, Seven Days in May. I'm suggesting, Mr. President, there's a military plot to take over the government. This may occur sometime this coming Sunday. There are some who will say, it can never happen here. But this is the story of how it could happen in seven days of intrigue, of blackmail, of terror, an eternity of suspense. This is the astounding story of a military plot to overthrow the government of the United States. Okay, so um, seven days in March, 1964. May. Seven days in May. Seven days in May, uh, 1964, uh, directed by John Frankenheimer, who also directed The Manchurian Candidate, another great movie. I really liked Seven Days in in May a lot. Um, It was really, really fun sort of thriller uh, lots of great stars and actors in it. Um, and Manchurian Canada is also a really great movie. Not the remake they did with... Uh, no, no. With, with the, What's-His-Face. But, uh, Schreiber and Denzel. And, yeah, yeah, no. But uh, the no. the one from the 60s with uh, Angela Lansbury and... Um, Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey. Although I contend that movie is really weird. If we want to get into it, we can. But It is. Another... Well, this movie is weird. Yeah. Two, the screenplay is written by Rod Serling, the uh, the famous host of uh, the Twilight Zone, and it has, as I think the Manchurian Candidate does, sort of a, it's sort of a Twilight Zoney. I don't know something about it. Um, well, why don't we lay out exactly? Just give a little uh, right. So uh, it's, it's set in nineteen in nineteen sixty, 
And a the president, uh, played by Frederick Marsh, the president Jordan Lyman, has signed or or negotiated a treaty with the Russians uh, for complete nuclear disarmament. And uh, the 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 chief, I guess he's the chief of the Joint Chiefs. The of staff. army, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the chairman right. of the Joint Chiefs. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, played by Burt Lancaster, is an Air Force general named James Mattoon Scott. And he is, um, as are a lot of the military, the people at the Pentagon, uh, dead set against. He thinks this is a terrible idea that we're being played for suckers. Uh, the Russians aren't going to disarm and they're going to attack us and destroy us. And, and they're dead set against this, um, this treaty, which is now going to go to uh, Congress to be ratified. Um, his aide is uh, played by Kirk Douglas. He's a Marine Corps colonel named Jiggs Casey. And Casey, um, at the beginning of the film, um, there's sort of a few things that happen that, that are odd to him. Um, um, he learns about this, uh, this pool that's taking place, the Pentagon for the Preakness stakes. Um, and then he, he meets an old friend, uh, a guy, uh, Mutt Henderson, played by Andrew Duggan, um, who is has been assigned to this um, mysterious base in Texas and outside of El Paso? Yeah, he's never heard of before, and and it's, yeah, he's talking to him very matter of factly about it. As if and Kirk Douglas, right. who has never heard a word about this this right. base, which right. makes and you know he would he would know he's in a position to know, right. and he knows nothing. So he looks, he tries to look it up, he can't find anything about it, and this sort of gets him gets the gears moving in his head um, that something odd is going on. And it turns out that Lancaster is leading, is organizing a coup against uh, President Lyman uh, to stop the, uh, he's, he's got this base in, um, in Texas from which he is going to send troops to major U.S. cities. And he is going to, there's also this technology um that is capable of like sort of uh, like taking over the communications system in the, the United States. Basically uh, the emergency broadcast system right. over all the networks. He could basically take that over. Right. Yeah. Sort of like if you watch the horrible movie, Wonder Woman 84, uh, <laughs> they had a similar theme in that. And he's going to come on and say, uh, you know, whatever I'm taking over. He, he seemed that at the beginning of the movie, they paint him as quite popular uh, that the uh, Lyman's ra uh, approval ratings are are like twenty nine percent or something like that. Yeah, um, he's, he's in the toilet. He's in the toilet. And, and, it is not a popular move what he has done. Right, and Scott General Scott is, is very popular. Is very popular, and right. it's a the popular position. Right. Yes. So he's going to um, he's going a, to execute a military, military takeover. Of the United States, and he's trying to get people on board with him, and the way he's communicating about it with them is through this Preakness pool. So if if you if you it, I don't if remember, you say you're in if you say you're in the pool, that means you're, you're in on the on the, on the coup. coup, and if you don't, then you're not. And there's a one guy who one a vice admiral in the Navy who says he's not in. And um, the, memorably played John, John Houseman. John Houseman, yes, the guy yeah. from. Uh, what was the company that he did commercials for? Uh, uh, Smith Barney. Smith Barney. Yeah. 
before and, its time. And right, also the was, paper chase. And, yeah, and he was know, the grandfather on Silver Spoons if you're an 80s child. Oh. Um, anyway, so finally, Kirk Douglas, he really... Um, there's also this uh, really he wonderful... He knows something is wrong. He knows, yeah. And he's got to do something, but he's torn. Yeah. But he ends up going to the White House. Right. There's also a senator from California... Yes. Um, Senator, Senator Prentice, Prentice, played by yeah. Whit Bissell. Whit Bissell. Bissell, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Uh, not the carpet cleaning family, probably. But uh, he he says something weird to him at a party that doesn't make any sense. And and uh, I guess he thinks that uh, Douglas is in on it, and he's not. So he goes to the White House finally and shares this information with the president, who who sort of then... His interest, his interest is peaked enough that he gathers some people together to. It doesn't sound further. his aide, played by Martin Balsam, is incredulous. That's ridiculous. But Frederick March, deep down, thinks maybe this isn't so crazy, right. because he knows Burt Lancaster. He knows what's going on politically. So, some an instinct in him says, "Wait, well, let's not dismiss this quite yet." Right. And so they start to investigate. <clears throat> There's a B plot in which Ava Gardner uh, plays uh, a woman who has had an affair with Scott, the Burt Lancaster character. Um, and Douglas seems sort of, in- or she's interested in him, and maybe they're interested in each other. And and she- he ends up uh, trying to sort of get some. Black He's supposed to get dirt on uh, yeah. from her about Burt Lancaster. She's got letters from him, like love letters. <clears throat> He's been cheating on his wife, and and uh, so yeah. finally they they sort of kick, they start investigating this. Then there's a, a senator from uh, Georgia, Georgia, uh, played Ray by Clark, uh, played by Edmund O'Brien, the great Edmund O'Brien. Yeah, he's yeah. very good. He's sort of a drunk uh, Southerner. Uh, and, he, and he's Frederick March's like oldest friend right. in government. So right. they go way back and he's who he confides in. Right. So he's enlisted and a couple of other guys, you know, are enlisted. It's a very small group to try and investigate this. And cause they only have about a week right. it's seven before days they day know that seven, you know, the, because the day of the race, the Preakness race is the day the coup is supposed to happen because the president is supposed to be, uh, watching military maneuvers at a band and the coup will take place then. Right. They, they've figured this out. So they only have a week to foil this. Right. So they send uh, the chief of staff, uh, his name is Paul Gerard in the movie, this guy, Martin Balsam. Martin Balsam. They yeah. send him to Gibraltar to try to talk to the John Houseman character and who is the guy who said he was not in on the plot. Um, right. But is is keeping quiet about it, and uh, they want uh, they want a confession. They from want him. a confession from him. So Gerard goes and gets the confession from Houseman, and then dies mysteriously in a plane crash on the way back. But he he keeps the confession in a cigarette holder, cigarette uh, case, cigarette yeah. case like a metal cigarette case that survives the plane crash, which is in the end what what. Is the sort of thing that see something good does everybody. come out of smoking, there right? You go. Right, right. Um, so the middle, the sort of and middle and end, it's of the, the movie unraveling is, of the plot, right? And, it's the un- you and know, it sort and... of goes back and forth between these two camps as they sort of, uh, you know, 
because they eventually the president calls in Lancaster and and tells him he knows what's going on and Lancaster denies it but is um, even though he knows the president knows now he's still going to try to go forward with it and um, I thought it was great I really enjoyed it a lot Um, so tell me tell me what you like no no I I, I've always liked it I mean you know I always thought John Frankenheimer was a great director and and that this was also a great Burt Lancaster period for about seven, eight years. He was just making a string of great movies almost back to back, you know, from Sweet Smell of Success to Elmer Gantry to Birdman of Alcatraz to a movie uh, also a Europe, The Leopard, uh, then this and then another movie right after this, which is one of my favorite Lancaster movies, The Train. Um, do you so, like The Leopard? Yes. You do. I have that. And I. I don't think I've ever made it through. It's very long. I don't oh, it's I've very long. It's different, but Bert, Bert is great in it. The Leopard is about is a movie about a, like a, a Sicilian nobility, yeah, Duke or something, and it's I don't. Visconti was a very famous Visconti. Italian. Visconti, Visconti was correct. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Go ahead. Um, so this was a great period. This is peak Lancaster, and Lancaster and Douglas had already worked together a couple of times. So. You know, and that's really the crux of the movie. The, the two military men ultimately are butting heads, the general and his loyal aide, who he calls a Judas. He has turned on him. But right. the, what makes it so apt and valid, especially today, is that basically Kirk Douglas represents what we all really aspire to and believe in he's the military man who when it push comes to shove stands with the constitution right because there is a scene where frederick march actually you know uh, there's a, a lull and he actually asked kirk douglas by the way colonel what do you think about the treaty and he goes well truthfully i agree with general scott i think it's a big mistake and we shouldn't do it but we can't do this you know, we, we, you're, you're the commander in chief. You, we, we, the military doesn't have a say in this. You say we do it and we do it. And March says to him, so you stand by the constitution. And Douglas goes, well, I never really looked at it that way before, but yeah, that's it exactly. And that, that's the point. He's the military man who is the ideal military man. This is exactly the way the system is supposed to he work. Does what you would hope they would, someone would do. Yes, and then you know, and and you get the indication today in today's world with the Pentagon and that that there are a lot of Kirk Douglases out there with this administration. That you th- okay, you think I so. do? No, no, because there was some talk earlier this week about maybe that letter that went from all the ex-Secretary of Defenses mm-hmm. that they didn't want to call out the military this week to appear in Washington to keep order. Oh, That's the last thing they want. Yeah, because Trump hopeful. See, in Trump's mind, he would you know use them as a force to keep him in office. You know, in his warped mind, you know, the, a coup, a military coup in Trump's mind is not far fetched. We we could see that actually emerging in his brain. So the idea, I think, especially in this administration, there are more Kirk Douglases out there th- than we 
might think, and that's maybe the saving grace of our system. Because, you know, this coup is a very near thing in this movie. And, you know, they're kind of lucky. You know, the circumstances kind of break their way. And it's a near thing. But, right. you know, they ultimately can foil it. But there are lessons to be learned. You know, it, we have a, it, our American experiment is very fragile. Yeah. Ultimately. And we were seeing that in stark relief today. And it's amazing how this movie really, you know, with, with the events of the past couple of months culminating in today really hits home. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the, the thing that struck me about it, it does hit home, but is the degree to which, you know, the, the, the plan, the plot that's being executed um, by Lancaster is obviously been planned uh, as you would expect from a military person, uh, you know, to the last oh, detail. Clockwork. Yes. Yeah, it's, he's it, been... you know, he, he's enlisted other members of the joint chiefs of staff. Yeah. You know, he's got the communications thing all set. I mean, it's, it's going to happen and it's going to be essentially bloodless and brutal and it's going to work. Right. Yeah. And there's none of that with Trump. No, there's no plan. No, there's just chaos and just stirring up the shit and just getting his people fired up. And so that's that's where, to me, that's where the whole coup thing falls apart a little bit, just because. Well, this was see. I think what you have to understand is this movie and the book that it comes from, which I read, there was a whole in the 60s. There were the all these Washington thrillers written about inside Washington and the the way that world really worked. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them remember, and it's a very Cold War mentality that all these books echo that mo in many of these political thrillers, the either the villains or the the weaker characters are always the pointy headed, egg headed. Democrats. They're soft. They don't understand the world. They're for disarmament. They're too soft on the Russians. You know, they, they, they're, they're, they're never really the hero of any of these books. Mm -hmm. The idea is that, and it, and it does reflect the time. It reflects, you know, the emergence of John F. Kennedy. The idea of Kennedy was that yeah, he's maybe liberal, but not very liberal, and he's not soft. Right. He, he's 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 going to be tough. He's going to and when he ran against Nixon in '60, you know, he was running to the right of Nixon in a lot of defense matters, and there was this applause for Kennedy from big columnists at the time. I remember there was one guy, very famous columnist, Joseph Alsop who was very influential at the time and he was raving about Kennedy and, 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 and in print, he was, he, he said something along the lines of my God, he's Adlai Stevenson, who was the, the, the famous eggheaded liberal of the age who lost twice against Eisenhower. Yeah. He's Adlai mm -hmm. Stevenson, but with balls, you know, this yeah. idea that, you know, Kennedy, he will be tough on the Russians and Cuba and whatever. 
So all these books, Seven Days in May, all of them come out of this Cold War, tough, tough, tough world that we that we're living in. The one thing, though, about this is, is that even though the Joint Chiefs and Burt Lancaster might have some valid points about this disarmament treaty, but there's the line you can't cross, that the system has to work. Do we that, know... That's, do we know in this movie what party the people are in? Yeah, I think it's it's clear Frederick March is a Democrat mm-hmm. because and they, and, and Scott, I mean Scott uh, the Lancaster character is talked about. He could easily get the nomination for president, uh, presumably of the Republican Party, if he wanted it. So this gets you tricky because we're talking about a period of time now, 1964, right? This movie came yeah. out, so this was the year that. Lyndon Johnson was elected, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, right in a landslide. Uh, but this is before the switch, the the switch, or the the Southern strategy. Oh yeah, yeah, Nixon. right. This is before well, well Johnson so, with so the when civil say, rights legislation. I'm just yeah. saying when you say so and so is a Democrat, so and so is a Republican. I think people think of that in modern terms. Like, the, but a lot of it still holds even then. I mean, the whole point. But remember, the FDR coalition at the time was, you know, all these old-style Southern senators and congressmen who ran Congress because they had such seniority, and there was a basically a grand bargain that Roosevelt, Truman, Kennedy, and LBJ sort of had to play along with that. They would go along on social programs because they were Democrats, the New Deal, things like that. But as long and you know, but you had to be good militarily and certainly on civil rights, you couldn't, you know, get out ahead. Right. That that was the grand bargain, and that's what LBJ broke. Yeah. And and that's what turned our world into, into what, what we what it is today because now that, the that, that's when the south went republican Republic. up until then the you know that was you know okay Lyndon and jfk and harry truman you know let don't don't uh no federal civil rights nonsense right. you know we'll right. we'll give you the new deal we'll give you the fair deal we'll give you the great society we're we're fine with that we'll we'll vote for you on that but you know you just got to listen to us on this and so, so it's interesting, like the Edmund O'Brien character, the senior senator from Georgia, you know, he's exactly that kind of politician. Right. You know, you know domestically, he would be fine, but I bet you if the movie went in another direction, I have a feeling we know what his civil rights stance <laughs> right. would be right. in those, even though he and Frederick March are best friends. I think Fred Jordan Lyman, the Frederick March character, I believe he's supposed to be from Ohio, Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I forgot. I, I think so. Somewhere so Midwest, he's a, he's he's more of a northern liberal Democrat, but you know he's best friends with this old style Southern Paul. So uh, you know, the, the, you know, this is so. This is when the world was changing. This idea of this consensus Cold War mentality, and which is what Lancaster represents, and in a way March is really violating for the time that would have been a very a completely radical departure, right? Complete disarmament with the Soviets. Right. So, but the, 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 the idea that, you know, even 
Democrat, Republican, where we disagree, and many of these authors probably were more Republican than Democrat, but you can't, you know, overthrow the government. No, that there, 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 it stops. You know, it stops here, and Washington, the Washington consensus has to hold. Right. You know. Right, and uh, in the end. Uh, it's sort of left open what happens to Scott. Uh, he is going to go forward with the the, the coup, um, and and uh, but Mark March sort of gets out ahead of him and holds this press conference. Says I've asked for these people's resignations, and then the clincher is that <clears throat> the, the this cigarette case has preserved the letter from the vice admirable it's found at the set the airline airplane crash and uh and that's proof of of what's happened and so he has to back down so all the other joint chiefs who he's asked for their they they announced they they, 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 and so scott is alone and so the idea is that that he will resign and he's finished and right you know um so anyway seven days in may 1964 it's available for like four bucks on amazon i highly recommend it i thought it was really good and uh, I'm gonna give the leopard another shot. And uh, yeah, well, and if you train, actually, you the, the train, train. I love the train. It's the movie Frankenheimer and Lancaster did right after this, and it it's about the French resistance in World War II. It's sort of based on the true story about you know, remember the Monuments Men movie mm-hmm. about the art in yeah, France yeah, yeah. being it it's it it's about the French resistance foiling this German general's attempt to basically loot all the uh, great art of Paris as Paris is falling and get it to Germany. What uh, year is that? It, when the movie yeah. taking place no, in August year, of you know, what year did it come out? The movie 64, I think. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, uh, Bert Lancaster plays the, uh, leader of this small French resistance cell. He, he's a railroad man, and it's basically their attempts to foil the great art of, of France, so he's the national French treasure. Country. Yes. But what I love about the movie in particular, because it, it, it confirms this long-held suspicion I've had, that I really think, and I'm, I'm not really joking about this, that the French in the spring of 1940 were humiliated by the Germans. Yeah. They basically lost within two, three weeks, they lost the war. They had to surrender, yeah. you know, May of 19. And then, you know, famously Britain and Churchill are all alone, you know, Dunkirk, you know, I really think that the French who was reputed to have the best military in Germany uh, in in Europe in 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 the 30s into the 40s, and they were just totally embarrassed. Yeah. I think they did it deliberately. I think they pulled this Clark Kent routine because they knew they could pull this heroic French resistance thing during the war, and they'd look so cool doing it. <laughs> like like the, like like oh we're we're sorry we're such wusses and pansies and look at and yet they're doing this unbelievable French resistance stuff. You know, so I think they did it I, deliberately. Does this mean I can't tell my French army jokes anymore? Like uh, no. 
Can I no. sell you a? Can I interest you in a French Army rifle? Never fired, only dropped once. No. Yeah, well, but that's that just it. Because if you see what Burt Lancaster and his small little resistance group do in this movie, it's unbelievable. Oh. You know the way they out with the the, the German army. It's it's amazing. It, the Leopard is a weird movie because. Um, I guess I can never tell if it's dubbed in English or I, I think he spoke it. I think it was an no, Italian Lancaster film. It is, but he, Lancaster's, but he speaks, if I remember, he does do his own English. Right. But because remember, dubbed. in Europe, they love dubbing yeah. in Europe. So he dubbed his own, his own. He English. did himself. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, we got to move on. Uh, and so... Birdman of Alcatraz at the same, which is all one of my favorite movies. And Elmer Cantor, I'm telling you, sweet, it was a great, unbelievable period for Burt Lancaster. When we come back, we'll talk about Lincoln. It's much easier, by the way, to act presidential than what we're doing here tonight, believe me. And I said... And I said, with the exception of the late great Abraham Lincoln, I can be more presidential than any president that's ever held this office. That I can tell you. It's real easy. Lincoln um, is a movie probably more people will be familiar with. Uh, It was released in 2012, directed by Steven Spielberg. The uh, script was written by Tony Kushner, the playwright who is famous for writing Angels in America. Um, amongst other things, I think he did the screenplay to Munich as well. Um, yeah. And it's based on a book called A Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, which I read and became very famous around the time Barack Obama was elected. Um, it's sort of a uh, like a uh, anti-partisan, uh, you know, well, the, the idea, idea that, that you, you would assemble like, all your rivals, right, all your rivals. you ran against, right. put them in your cabinet, right. and, and you know, in the crisis of the Civil War, right? You know, yeah, th- this is and Lincoln did that. It's so. a good, it's a good book. Uh, that is not what happened in the Obama administration, exactly. But anyway, well, um, I think they were referring more to the Hillary Clinton entrance right, into right. the cabinet. Yeah. Uh, so it stars obviously Daniel Day Lewis as Abraham Lincoln. Um, Sally Field as Mary Todd Lincoln, David Strathairn, uh, who is someone Strathairn. Yeah. You'll you'll know if you see him. He's one of those guys who's in a lot of things. Uh, as uh, Secretary of State William Seward, a New Yorker, uh, Tommy Lee Jones as Thaddeus Stevens, a congressman from Pennsylvania and a, a rabid abolitionist. Uh, Lee, uh, a couple other people who are in it. Um, <clears throat> Hal Holbrook plays Preston Blair, one of the founders of the Republican Party. Uh, James Spader is this sort of uh, Republican operative um, who's getting the votes for Lincoln and as he tries to pass the 13th Amendment. And one of my favorites is, um, uh, for those of you who are uh, who love the Bad News Bears, <clears throat> Jackie oh, yeah. Earl Haley plays Alexander Stevens, the, the, the vice president of the Confederacy. He was the, the bad boy. What was his name? Kelly? In, Kelly uh, Leak. Kelly Leak. Yeah, in uh, in the Bad News Bears back in the seventies, yeah. he plays Alexander Stevens, the the pre- the vice president of the uh, of the Confederacy. And the the plot of the movie is basically it's January eighteen sixty five, right? Yes. Uh, and Lincoln has just been elected to his second term. 
and he wants to pass the 13th Amendment to the Constitution ending slavery, um, something that uh, basically amongst his um, cabinet only he thinks is a good idea. And it's, it's the story of him um, sort of marshalling forces to, to, um, to whip, whip votes. Whip, whip, whip as votes. the war is coming to an end. Right. And so there's, there's, there's a real impetus to get this done. Right. At this point. Yes. So. Um, and, uh, and, and that's basically what the movie is about. And it's full of great, you know, I mean, every, Daniel Day Lewis is famous for doing, you know, a movie every five years or something. I think he's retired supposedly now. He uh, has retired. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he did so few movies, but he would sort of th- put himself all in. And he really. Incredibly method actor. Yeah. In that he, sense. he really is Abraham Lincoln in this and makes you like, I mean, I watched it again uh, last night. Yeah. And uh, he's just so likable. I mean, you just think to yourself like. You know, yeah, so it, many, so many presidents, even ones you would say are good presidents, uh, personally, you, you can't, you're not always sure you would like them personally, but he right. comes across as a very, very likable well, person. Well, you know, look at it this way. If I were able to go back in time and actually meet Abraham Lincoln, yeah, and if he wasn't like Daniel Day-Lewis, I'd be really disappointed. Right. You, you know... It, it's an it's such an incredible performance that yeah. you know you, you cannot imagine this isn't Lincoln. Yeah, you know? he's he looks like him. Uh, yeah. Although I don't think Daniel Day Lewis is that tall, but no, but he, they made he, him lanky. They made looking. him lanky, and he's sort of ruddy faced, and he's got the beard and the top hat, and and he moves in this sort of this sort of way you would imagine. He's kind of raw boned way that. You imagine Lincoln looking, and his vocal. I love what he did vocally. Vocally, he was, yeah. I mean, obviously, but, nobody really knows what Lincoln sounded well, like. There have been some written descriptions, written. and it's really true. He did him kind of in a tenor, which is kind of surprising. Yes, and yet it works brilliantly. And if you think about it, especially in the days before you know microphones and everything, have, and his voice would have worked very well. Would have carried yeah. much better, right, than than speaking down here. But you know, it it, it 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 was just a great acting choice that he came up with, and you know, it, it is. I think it's one of the great screen performances you'll ever see. Yeah, and it's the movie is sort of built for, to my mind. It's sort of built around like two or three little speeches that he makes uh, that are sort of the centerpiece of everything. Uh, one is about. Um, is sort of earlier in the movie um, when he's talking about um, the Emancipation Proclamation and the sort of the idea that a president has certain powers during a time of war, uh, and he's he's fighting with his cabinet about whether it's legal for him to do certain things and well and why we have to do this. I yeah. mean, the Emancipation the Emancipation Proclamation is not enough. Right. It, it's a very Great. It's a great study in logic, political logic, legal logic, and he lays it out wonderfully. You know, this idea that, you know, uh, who knows, the Supreme Court may overrule the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. And this idea that slavery is I've, is now outlawed in these states, if my contention is, is that 
they've never left the union, that they're still part of the union. It's an illegal rebellion. Right. So after the war, won't their laws of their states still hold, which basically hold that slavery is legal? Right. So, I mean, it, it, logic dictates we have to come up with a constitu constitutional amendment is the only way to protect what we fought this war for. Right. And, and don't you folks see that? Yeah. We have to do this. And that happens at the White House. And there's another speech later uh, where he's yelling at them about he's sort of thundering away at them about about getting these votes for him for the uh, to pass the 13th Amendment, which is also a great uh, speech. And then it's just a bunch of and plus there, there is a time element here. He wants to do this, obviously, before the war ends. Right. And there's also this. Uh, pressure coming that the Confederates may want to sue for peace. Right. So if the war ends and maybe they demand that slavery still holds or, or whatever, he, there's a time pressure. He has to get this done before that happens. And he knows he knows that if if we as a country had gone through that and still had slavery at the end, that very little would have been accomplished essentially right that like it would have been a slaughter this, for what this is yeah. the thing we have to get rid of this is what we have to do because it became clear as as you know maybe it wasn't as clear in 1861 when people thought the war was about different things but by 64 it you know it it was clearly about slavery right and and um, yes they had to do this yeah, and those so those are two big moments. There's other ones where he tells he tells a great uh, story about uh, Ethan Allen as a Vermonter oh, yeah. that I really enjoy. Yeah, um, there's a great uh, bit in the basement of the White House with uh, Tommy Lee Jones as Thaddeus a wonderful Stevens. Scene. Wonderful yeah. scene. I mean, he there's other good performances in it. But... Well, I mean, Tommy. Let's not. I mean, there are uh, Strathairn and Seward, yeah. but my other favorite scene. I think it's Tommy Lee Jones in Congress when he has to make a, a, you know, a speech right. during right. the debate right. and it's his turn to speak mm -hmm. and everyone is begging him, you know, you, you, you got to tone it down. We know you're a real abolitionist. You can't go up there and say that black it's... people are equal to white people. You, you got to tone it down. You got to be smart here politically, you know, and, and everyone's waiting for this speech in this in this impassioned debate and i find that scene remarkable the way he does it yeah. and the way he skewers his democratic uh, opponents and right. you know uh, oh you want to talk equality <laughs> okay uh, you you know what i'm talking about this idea and and i remember the reaction of seward who's in the gallery watching i thought was priceless Right, like this is where he admiringly. says, yeah, they're trying to get him, they want him to say that he believes that black people and white people are equal, because right. that's sort of a bridge too far. And, and right, they and, think and that he'll, they'll lose vote, they won't, they, they right. can't pass this thing. And so he's he goes, saying, I, I, I stand before, I, I, yeah. I believe in equality before the law, nothing else. Right, and his and his, the Republicans there are going, what? That's not what you. And the Democrats are, oh, so you're saying? And then he, the way he turns it, is that he says to the, you know, how could I possibly say that all men are equal, when standing before me is you, George, 
my Democratic George opponent Pendleton. here. You, who are basically the scum of the earth, despicable, you know, there, there's nothing redeeming about you in any shape or form. You are the lowest of the low. So how can I possibly say that that you are equal to to anybody but you still even you George you. deserves protection before the law and even you have to be you know equal before the law and that's what I'm saying yeah you know he's and very it's like he's very wow. very good uh the yeah. other great scene to me is uh he uh, Lincoln goes late one night to the telegraph office yeah um yeah. to send a telegraph he's got to he's trying to figure out whether to tell Ulysses Grant to send this there's these three commissioners yeah. from the confederacy who are like waiting to see him and he he doesn't want to see them because he want he doesn't want them to he, he wants them he, he not before the vote right after he needs the vote. the vote to happen before the because if if they it's got to be a fait accompli right if they yes. if they settle or they decide you know because he knows if he meets with them and they'll end the war tomorrow, which he almost has to do because right. it's horrible, but they're going to demand that they can keep their slaves. Right. So what right. does he do? Right. Yeah. So he's he goes to this telegraph office and there's two telegraph guys. One is played by Adam Driver. Yes. Uh, yeah. And he makes this speech about um, uh, what's the common Euc acts? Euclid. Euclid's Euclid common notion. Geometry. Yeah. Yes about equality it, it's just he's great it's just great yeah, no, it makes great. you yearn for someone like that yeah and and also you As remind me i also love you know jared harris is grant the scene with grant on the porch when they meet it's very moving to me i'm actually reading the grant bi grant biography right now and it's amazing how in basically they only knew each other a year that's what they first met in 1864 when basically uh, Lincoln made Grant the Supreme Commander. Up until then, he had been in the Western Theater, Vicksburg, right. Mississippi. But they only met in, in then, and in the space of a year, they developed an incredibly close, very emotional relationship. Hmm. I mean, I was reading that um, at Lincoln's, uh, before the funeral, when he was lying in state in Washington, that you know there was a little honor guard, and Grant was just standing there apparently and people were stunned to see tears were just streaming down his face. Hmm. And, and, and Grant wrote about him. I mean, he, he was very emotional about how much he admired and loved Lincoln and yeah. what he meant to him. Hmm. So, and that scene with, with Grant on the porch right before Appomattox, I right. find very moving. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There were, there's a lot of great, it's a, it's really, really a good movie. It, it's a, it's a, it, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it ends with they passed obviously uh spoiler alert um they passed the 13th amendment um and it turns out that um i don't know if this is from if this is real but uh, uh thaddeus stevens is is shacking up with his 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 i think that is true i yeah. think that that is historically accurate his housekeeper, his housekeeper. is an african-american woman and they're in a relationship and uh, they show them in bed together, not in bed together, reading the text to each other of the 13th Amendment. Which um, he had managed to purloin 
from right. the house. He just the took actual it. original copy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he just folded it up and put it in his yeah. his pocket and took it. Uh, and then at the end, the uh, the movie ends with, um, well, the movie ends with his second uh, inaugural, but actually. It, that's going back in time. It ends with his assassination. At well, it theater. ends with him going to the theater. He goes to the theater. He's, he's from the White House. Killed. Yeah. They get the you get the scene at the boarding house across the street. If you've ever been there, that's a yes. cool place to check out. Um, it's very cool. And the whole line about now he belongs to the ages and that all that stuff. Um, and uh, and then and then they cut to him giving his very famous. Um, Second, Second inaugural, inaugural, which is is one of his most famous, aside from um, the Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address, is yeah, one of yeah, his with most Malice famous. Toward none, charity, right, for, charity all. for all, um, and yeah, it's it's a, a really great film, and, and it it's obviously not as sort of um, explicitly related to this to what happened today um, as no. Seven Days in May, but there is a lot of talk in it about about um, the Constitution about. Uh, the power of the presidency, um, and and to see the difference that a president makes, the difference that a president Lincoln makes, or a Donald Trump. I mean, it yeah. does matter. Yeah, and, and the you know to, the right man at the right time, you know, circumstances make the man, history makes the man, whatever. I don't know if you believe in the great man of history theory, but you know, there's a lot to be said for it. And you know, having Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Uh, leads you to believe how different the outcome could have been with just about anybody, anybody else, else. Yeah. there. So, and, and, and today it really hits home with the presidency that we have now. And we're basically hanging on by our fingertips for two weeks until he's out of there. You, you know, yeah. it, it's remarkable how fragile it, this really is. And we really have to fight for it. And we really have to, you know, I mean, we, have to, we saw last night in Georgia. Yeah. My God, voting does count, doesn't it? That one shocked me, I have to say. I yeah. didn't have a lot of hope for that. I was talking to Andrea about it the other night, and I, I well, we talk about it a lot. And I think it's larger even than, you know, you talk about how fragile, like, democracy is. But, I mean, uh, beyond that, it's just how fragile reality is that like, it's all a social construct, you know, these things, they have these, they have meaning um, because we agree that they have meaning and we agreed for a long time about who the arbiters were of truth and, and what, what the truth was. And, it's just, and they're norms. They're they're, they're not written down. That's the whole point of Trump. Basically stuff, we took completely for granted because this is the way it always has been done. And all of a sudden it's not codified. It's not written down and look how easily it can be obliterated. Yeah. And, and if Congress sure. doesn't do anything about it, look at the consequences. I'm not sure writing it down is even the point. I no, but, but, but even but, the stuff but that's written down is, that, but, but the, basically these given things which were givens, yeah. But no one ever thought you actually had to write down, like, um, well, the emoluments clause is written down. I've second his hotel in Washington and his business thing, but you know, his he's completely shattered norms, and basically said, "Okay, stop me. 
all right, but go ahead. You know, and if Congress doesn't have the will to do it, look what happens. Yeah. But beyond that, what is the truth? Yeah, well, you know, these people yeah. who showed up in Washington today, um, many of them believe because they Part get their information point. from a different source than we get it from that this election was stolen from Donald Trump. It was a fraud because they were told it was a fraud and yeah. therefore it's a fraud. Not, yeah. It's not all that different than how we are processing it. We get our information. For, now, I mean, I'm not, I'm not comparing oh, the two. Um, and certainly there's many, many more arguments. There is actually no evidence of uh, electoral fraud and there are uh, Republican governors and secretaries of state and, and even Bill Barr saying that there's no fraud. No, I mean, um, the, the, uh, the officials in Georgia, Republicans all acted very honorably and legally right? I but, mean, in this whole thing. But in the end, it's just like, there's no proving to these people anything. No. What are you no. going to do? Tell them, hey, you read this story in the New York Times? I mean, they, they don't care. That's not, they don't, they don't, they think that's a lie. And there's, right. there's no, that's the really frustrating thing is there's no, there's no, it feels like there's no way through that. How, how do you get past that if just somebody doesn't? I don't think you can. Yeah. That's that, why I think we're, we're going to be suffering from this for a long time. Yeah. I mean, if this is, you know, the Republican Party we've got, how, how do you break it? I don't know. I don't know. We'll get I mean, to, you know. We'll figure uh, that out in the next episode. Uh, well, we'll figure out everything else in the world, <laughs> too, by then, right? All the, problems will be solved. The other movies we were, so we, I mentioned that we combined these two, which were supposed to be in separate episodes. We were, I also watched last night um, Lincoln in Illinois. Abraham Lincoln in Illinois. Abe Lincoln in Illinois. From yes. 1939. Which was actually a famous Broadway play by uh, Robert Sherwood. Right. right? Stars yeah. Mr. Raymond Massey as Abraham Lincoln. We were going to pair who, that. Who until Daniel Day-Lewis showed up was considered the definitive movie Abraham Lincoln. Right. We were going to pair that with Lincoln. And we were going to do, I forget now, Seven Days in May. What was the other one? Well, we, were, we, were, we, were, we didn't really come up with a very good. We were talking about the American president. Oh, right. The American president with uh, the Aaron Sorkin movie. That's, yeah, Michael you know, Douglas, on, on Martin cable, Sheen. Every, yeah. yeah, every couple of uh, minutes. Couple of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am not a big Aaron Sorkin fan, so that would have been fun. Maybe we can figure out. We'll, we'll get to those at another time. But, we'll, get, uh, we'll get to Aaron Sorkin. All right, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Hey.